Hey everybody, welcome to the Bridgetown Podcast. This is John Mark Comer, and I'm sitting here with the legendary Dr. Gary Bashirs, affectionately known as Hey Gary. Gary, yeah, exactly. And uh, Gary, you are the head of the theology department at Western Seminary. I am. And correct me if I'm wrong, the former head or president or whatever of the Evangelical Theological Society, yes, or I ETS. Was, I was president of Evangelical Theological Society in 1993, been on the executive committee for a long time, and still in leadership of the, of the organization. Wow, for those of you listening who have no idea what that is, it's a really big deal. So, <laughs> Gary, you're a really big deal. Well, um, yeah. yeah, don't disagree with yeah. that, you are. Anyway, we are sitting here. This is not a Sunday teaching. I am not at First Baptist Church on stage. We are sitting in my office above Barista on 13th. And this is a podcast segment that we are calling the cutting room floor. Sometimes stuff gets cut out of a Sunday teaching, either because we don't have enough time to talk about it all, or because it's too academic, or it's Mm -hmm. too kind of provocative, or whatever. And this is a great kind of place to explore offline an idea. So this is just me and Gary here, and we want to chat with you just a little bit about this complex or simple, depending on who you talk to, but for sure, kind of incendiary, explosive, politically charged word slash idea of inerrancy. So we're coming off the tail end of a month-long series on the Bible, which is a part of this much larger year biblical literacy that we're doing, along with Reality San Francisco and Tim Mackey from the Bible Project and a number of others. And so we've been teaching from the Bible on the Bible for, you know, five or six weeks now. And if you have been there on Sundays or you're following along on the podcast, you may have actually noticed that we have not used the word inerrancy once, which is rare because usually when you read a book about the Bible or you know, on the off chance that you listen to a teaching on a Sunday that's actually about the Bible, which is rare, but usually that's the first thing kind of out. We believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible and there's this list. And so we've been doing you know, hours and hours of teaching on the Bible without ever actually using that word. And so maybe you've been thinking, why is that? And what does John Mark and Bridgetown and, uh, believe or not believe about this idea? So basically right now, we just wanna take a few minutes and ask the question, is inerrancy a helpful, intelligent, accurate way to talk and think about what the Bible is? And um, so to start off, Gary, how about you define inerrancy for those listening that have no clue what it is, which is fine. What exactly is inerrancy? And what I mean by that is what, at a popular level, what is usually meant by that word? Yeah. Well, in simplest terms, what inerrancy means is what the Bible says God says. If he says 5,000 people got fed with a, a couple pieces of bread and some fish, that is exactly what happened. 5,000 people got fed. It says that what the Bible teaches is accurate representation of what actually happened. It focuses on the words of Scripture, uh, very much so, and it takes them literally. Uh, so, I mean, it's that simple. The history of it is it, uh, the word inspiration and infallible had been used in the church for a long time. And in the 18th, 19th century, liberals were using that term, but evacuating of the idea that what the Bible said was true and right. accurate. They're saying, yeah, I believe the inspired Bible. And by that, they meant I'm inspired when I read the Bible. Right. And so a group of people- yeah, Inspiration is quite a flexible word. Yeah. yeah. And that's the problem. So a new term was coined, inerrancy, 
first probably in which the basically just means in errand yeah, or without not, with error no error so it's yes. actually a double negative not not <laughs> truthful okay which is weird uh, but it was done to try to redeem the term inspired or infallible from the evacuation of meaning right so a new term was coined and defined and initially it was quite sophisticated but then the in the fundamentalist liberal debates of the early 19th century a hundred years ago it became this literalist what the Bible says is what God says. And almost a sticking point in the kind of liberal conservative right. war. And then in the mid-80s, mid-20th century, uh, the 1970s, 80s, when I was doing my doctoral work, the battle for the Bible came out, Harold Lenzel, and it became a dividing point. Do you affirm inerrancy, by mm -hmm. which it meant literal 5,000 people exactly eight? Yeah. Uh, and it became a battle. In, and this is in America. This so, is in America. like, if you step outside of the United States, most people, followers of Jesus, at a scholar level and at a popular level, this is just not a thing. That and those term that are, is not that used. the term is not a right. thing. And kind of people look in. I've read a number of scholars who are not American who look in and think, "What in the world is all the hubbub about with you yeah. Americans and your obsession and fight and war and debate yeah. over inerrancy?" But it, yeah. it has deep kind of cultural roots. That's is correct. my point here. That's correct. And so that term has a whole political history behind it, which you, you can get into it if you want to, but I would encourage you not to. It. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. Except that this idea, if the Bible says that 5,000 people ate food from the hand of Jesus, does it mean what it says? So talk to me about the logic really fast. Where, where does this logic come from, okay. this kind of way of thinking come from? It's the idea the Bible is inspired word of God. So the Bible is God's word. What Bible says, God says. So God is truthful. Bible is God's word. So Bible is truthful. And Bible is, God is infallible, accurate, all those things. So the Bible takes on those divine characteristics, kind of like Jesus has divine characteristics. Which I think for me is where the red lights on my dashboard start to go off mm -hmm. because, yes, God is all of those things. Yes. But that seems to be a way of reading the Bible that is um, our mutual friend, Dr. Tim Mackey, calls it the golden tablets yeah. view. This kind yeah. of view that the Bible yeah. fell out of heaven, kind of as is, and that the human authors, the Moses, the Paul, the Luke, the whoever, were more like a, a scribe or a robotic, right. in a robotic trance or something like that. Or the Quran, where yes. the picture of Angel Gabriel dictated and yes. Muhammad memorized and wrote down exactly what Gabriel said. That's kind of the idea. Yes, the Quran or the Book of Mormon, right. like, which is literally golden tablets yeah. or whatever. And I just think that way of reading the Bible at first glance is a high view of the Bible, but I actually think it is just so misleading because it goes so far out of its way to minimize or ignore, if not flat out deny, the human aspect right. of the Bible. Um, and the fact that it was inspired by the Spirit of God, but it was also written by Moses or yeah. Isaiah or Peter or John. Writing in a context or, for a particular people yes. for a particular And that's not purpose. a lower view of the Bible, not but it is, I think, a far more accurate view of the Bible. The Bible is not, one of the things I like to say is the Bible is not trying to hide the fact that it has this partnership between God and human beings in its writing. This is not like a dirty little secret to sweep under the rug. Yeah. It's like there from the first page, Paul to the Corinthians. He's not trying to hide the fact that he's the author, you know? Yeah even though it was also inspired by the Spirit. So, moving on, I mean, I think, back to our question, is inerrancy, or the fact that, you know, the idea of the Bible as without error, or however you want to define it, is this a helpful, intelligent, accurate way to think and talk about the Bible? And I think 
it's hard to answer that with a, a simple yes or no. It's impossible think, to answer yes. a yes or, simple yes or no. I think you have to, if you buy into the idea, okay, let's say now, yes, you believe that, you have to nuance it out. I think most you know, scholars, conservative or not, would agree with this. And so a couple of thoughts. First, you have to, a couple of things to nuance out. First, you have to talk about the fact that the Bible, if it is inerrant, is only inerrant in the original manuscript or what in the original manuscripts yeah. or what are because copyists make yes what is what are called the autographs, mm-hmm. meaning the actual papyrus that John put down the Gospel right. of John on. Okay, the problem is we don't have the autographs because they were written on papyrus, not in a Microsoft Word document, and papyrus has a shelf life of depending on who you talk to, you know, hundred years to four hundred years yeah. to nobody really knows for sure, but not two thousand years. Right. So what we have is not the actual papyrus that John put the Gospel of John on. We have thousands, literally, of copies of that original manuscript. And in these thousands of copies of copies of copies of the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are thousands of what in scholarship is called variants, which are minor, for the most part, disagreements between the manuscripts. And that sounds really scary, but it's it's really not, because the vast majority of those variants are spelling, for example, or punctuation, or word order. For example, Greek doesn't really have word order or much to write home about. And so most of it's that, and then once in a while you get a passage where there's a huge discrepancy, like the end of the Gospel of Mark, or I'm thinking of John 8, where you find that passage in John 8, you find it in other passages in John, you find it in Luke, you find it in Mark. But for the most part, it's all minor stuff. None of it really has right. you know, any major theological bearing at all. Where there's all. Real, real issues there, it's about 400 words exactly. in the text. And nothing impacts any teaching. Exactly. So it's not a scary thing. It's not, it's not a, it's a reality. secret. But it's a reality. We have to talk about it. So even if inerrancy is a right way to think about, talk about the Bible, it's in the original manuscripts, right. which we don't have. Second thing you have to nuance out is that you have to take into account genre. So the Bible is a work of literature, and it's a library. It's not one type of literature. There are who knows how many types. You have poetry, you have apocalyptic, you have narrative, you have parable, you have wisdom literature, you have all of this stuff. So the second thing you have to take into account is uh, this idea of genres. The Bible is a literary document. It's a library of all sorts of types of writings, poetry and apocalyptic Mm -hmm. and biography and narrative. And you have to take that into account. So when Isaiah writes that the trees of the field will clap their hands, that's poetry. So nobody in the world thinks. Nobody trees are actually die. thinks. No, no matter how literalist. Yes, how fundamentalist you are, nobody actually thinks that the trees will clap their hands. Right. That's a poetic way of saying that when Jesus is king over the world, creation itself will celebrate it and feel it at a deep visceral level. Third, you have to take into account the worldview of the author. And this is the reality that God speaks through human agency, through a man, through a woman, through a human author. So one example I used in a recent teaching was from the Psalms, where the psalmist is praising God and he says, let the waters over the heavens praise you. The waters over the heavens, what are those? Well, it's ancient Hebrew cosmology. It was totally normal. It was the way the world was thought of in that time, that the sky was blue because everybody knows this. There's an ocean up there. There's water up there. And that was above us. And there was the waters of the deep underneath the earth. And the earth was on four pillars, so on and so forth. And this is in the Bible, like, let the waters over the earth praise you. So the problem with an issue like inerrancy is if you really want to drill down and say the Bible is true at every single detail, you have a problem because mm-hmm. there's no ocean over the atmosphere that's not... If you make that literal. If you make that literal, right. yes. It's a gorgeous day in Portland right now. 
and it's bright blue sky. And it's not blue because there's an ocean up there. But that, if you're an ancient, it you know. It looks like it, though. It looks like it. If you're an ancient Hebrew, that was a really good guess, you know. And we, as a boy laying in the field, it exactly. looks like, gosh, it's a And that's, that's not a problem. That's not just problem. the fact that God inspired an ancient Hebrew poet. The truth of that passage is not that there's an ocean over the atmosphere. The truth of that passion passage is that all of creation is created to praise God, right. you know. So, and then fourth, as we kind of move down this list, we have to recognize that in the Bible, God meets people where they're at, he accommodates to them, and then he pulls them forward. And so, for example, the Torah, the law, is a great example of this. As a church we're in, we started Numbers this morning. I was reading it this morning. There's all sorts of stuff in the Mosaic Law, the 613 Commandments. This is not God's moral ideal for all time. This is God accommodating to ancient Israel and an ancient Near Eastern, barbaric, violent, tribal culture, accommodating, meeting them where they're at, and then incrementally pulling and pushing them forward towards his moral ideal. So in the law, we see this kind of moral trajectory. We see like this heart that even Jesus or Paul can later refer back to and say that was the heart behind it. But we don't see an ideal. God is accommodating to things like polygamy and how you treat mm -hmm. your second wife, mm -hmm. things like divorce, things like slavery, things that were part and parcel of the ancient world. If you were to take, say, slavery out, the economy would collapse. So God is accommodating to it, but at the same time, it's an implicit critique of it that pushes and pulls it forward to the moral ideal that we see in particular in the teachings right. and the life of Jesus. That's where we And I think that's actually in Abraham to. back in Genesis. Absolutely. It's all yes, because you see it in, in, yes, in Adam and yeah. Eve in the garden and yeah. then the patriarchs very much. And then, you know, finally, you have to recognize, here's my last thought for the nuance kind of list, you have to recognize that even if the Bible is inerrant, if you buy that category, even if it is, no reader of the Bible is inerrant. Right. So... Even, let's say that the Bible is without error, that every single detail about you know, science and medicine and the world and all of that is all accurate to a T, no reader or interpreter of the Bible is inerrant. I am inerrant. You are a brilliant theologian, but you're inerrant. I'm yes. Here. You're errant, you know. Errant. You, you get sometimes things, I get it right. You get Come on, give me a break. Sometimes times. I yes. get it right. A lot of the time. Most of the time you get it right. But that's the problem. Most of the time is not all of the time. Right. So exactly. all that means, that's not to like throw away our confidence in our interpretation of the Bible, but rather to say when we come to the Bible, we have to interpret it. And we are not inerrant. We are human. And we are both errant and fallible. And so we have to come with just a high dose of humility as we come to the text, as we approach the text. So back to our question is, after you nuance it out, and I think most mm -hmm. scholars, even in the conservative kind of realm, would agree with most of what I just said. After you nuance it out, is this a helpful category slash word slash idea or not? So Gary, back to you, what's your take? I, where I find it unhelpful is the liberal fundamentalist debate from a century ago that still goes on. Right. You still have some people on the fundamentalist side today, uh, and you have some people on the liberal side today. So you got Bart Ehrman's well-known yep. 400,000 mistakes in the Bible who can trust it. And a friend of mine who hates Christianity takes the Bible literally, and therefore it's wrong. Yes. Another friend of mine who's a fundamentalist takes the Bible literally. I don't care what science says, the Bible is right. Therefore, science is wrong. Right. Yes. And what's interesting is both fundamentalists and liberals, as I know it's a touchy word, but both read the Bible in the same yeah. hyper-literal, non-literary, non-nuanced, exactly. non-narrative-based way. It's fascinating. So the 
child who's raised in this fundamentalist church gets out of the church, goes to school, learns a little bit more, takes a Bible as lit class, actually mm-hmm. reads the Bible, and the whole, whole thing goes, goes to pot. Yep. So what I like to do is look at the Bible as ordinary language much of the time. It's what we technically called full inerrancy. And so when I use the term inerrancy, and I do, but I always have to nuance it, because I believe inerrancy, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And my basic thing is from G.I. Packer, comes from a long time ago, but I think he nailed it. When I say I believe in inerrancy, I have a commitment to receive as truth from God that which upon inspection the Bible is found actually to teach. Hmm. So that a hermeneutical piece, I think, is best done by a group of Christians from various theological tribes, various cultures, various ethnicities, and we sit down with open Bible together and say, well, what does this mean? Yeah. And when that group's come together, well, it says that, we've got a ton of confidence in it. There's a humility, but it's also confidence. And I like that line, what it teaches, not what it says. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you think of the psalm example of the water over the heavens, mm-hmm. it's saying there's water over the heavens, right. but what it's teaching is that yeah. all of creation is to yeah. praise yeah. God. What it says versus what it affirms, I mean, with classic example, uh, the, uh, the fool says there is no God. If I just say there is no God, the Bible says there is no <laughs> God, but that's not what it teaches. Right. I mean, that's a trivial example, but it's an important one. So what I want to do very much is to say I have confidence in the truthfulness of Scripture to give us the message of God to transform our lives, lead us to salvation in Jesus Christ, and affirm strongly the reality of him as a historical person, his death, resurrection, ascension, those kinds of things. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff you can go beyond that. But you prefer the word truthful. I prefer the word truthful. Yeah. But then I always have to say truthful for what? Yes. And now we're into the nuancing again. So give us one example as we wrap up here. Give us one example of where you see this play out. Kind of a silly example, but in 2 Chronicles 4, it talks about making a a mikvah, a place to wash, ceremony wash and go outside Mm -hmm. the temple. Right. And that mikvah is 30 cubits around, which would be about... 45 feet, and 10 cubits across. Now, if I'm a literalist, that, and a math, former math teacher, 30 divided by 10 is 3, the value of pi is 3.000000, period, if I'm a biblical literalist. If I'm a full inerrantist, which I am, uh, the value of pi is approximately 30 around, approximately 10 across, 3.14159. Science gives me more precise answer than scripture does, but the Bible is ordinary. Another example, Luke tells the story of the conversion of Paul three times. Yeah, It's quite different in those three different things, but the fundamental point he's making is exactly the same, but adapted for a different context. And this context. is one author, one book. And nobody debates Paul. He's clearly all three of them. a sharp, talented, intelligent author. Yeah. He's read what he put out, yeah. it's edited, yeah. and he tells the story three different times in three yeah. different ways. So I come Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell the same story with those same kinds of variations. Yeah. Not a contradiction. Storytellers do that. And it's not a problem. It's they not a problem. They put Matthew and Mark and Luke and John right next to each other. And mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, the early church was stupid and they had, yeah. oh my gosh, we didn't realize the actually actually were so, full of contradictions. Fundamentalists, what the Bible says God says is absolutely accurate. Nope. Liberals, what the Bible says, what God says is absolutely wrong. No, yeah, it speaks a, usually in There's a centrist language. ground there mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I'm kind of with you. I mean, my basic. Kind of with me. I'm kind of with you. Yeah, I'm never all the way with you. Of course because, not. No, I'm kidding. But um, I just, I think I have a love hate relationship with the word. What I love about the word is its impulse 
towards a high view of scripture, which I have because I'm a follower of Jesus. And Jesus clearly, whatever you think about the Bible, Jesus clearly had an over the top high view of the Bible. I mean, his line in the Sermon on the Mount about how don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, which was first century Jewish lingo for the Old Testament. And, but I've come to fulfill it and not one letter, not the smallest stroke of a man pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And that's a, you don't get a much higher view right. of you know, how truthful and trustworthy the scriptures are than Jesus. And so as a follower of Jesus, my entire view of the Bible is shaped by Jesus and his teachings. So I love the impulse of inerrancy to say, no, we really believe that this library is a right of, you know, full of writings that are both divine and human, but we believe this is literature, but it's also scripture. We believe this right. is inspired by God. It's truthful, it's trustworthy. I love that. But my hate relationship is one, it's just, I just don't think it's a sophisticated enough category to talk about the phenomenon of scripture. I just don't, I don't think it's nearly complex and nuanced enough to talk about the reality of the library that you know we open up and read every day. And so you can use the word and then nuance it like crazy, which sounds kind of like your MO, which is fine. Or I just personally prefer to avoid the word altogether, which is why I did not touch on it over the last month in our teaching and shoot for words that I did use like trustworthy or your word of truthful. And I'm with you, I just think my biggest fear and the reason we even wanted to do this little podcast because I think a strict kind of literalist, fundamentalist reading of inerrancy is a crisis of faith waiting to happen for so many people, and it's totally unnecessary. I think so many issues that people have with the Bible, whether it is a brilliant progressive scholar, a Bart Ehrman, or a Marcus Borg here in town, or Pete Enns, who's an up-and-coming thinker, I think their critique is not so much of the Bible as it is of what's been called Biblicism, right. a very specific and a uniquely American way of reading the Bible as this kind of encyclopedia of truth, this almost like scientific textbook kind of thing, which is just not what it is. It's a library. And, uh, and so I just think it's a crisis of faith waiting to happen, and I want to avoid that. But what I want to retain is this beautiful, I think, and helpful and accurate an intelligent way of thinking and talking about the Bible as inspired, as authoritative, and as trustworthy and as true. So I think maybe we'll end on that note. Just some stuff for you to think on as you go about your day, wherever you're at right now, at the gym, or on your morning commute, on your bike, or in your car, or whatever. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And Gary, thanks for coming over yeah. to this side Thank of the you. river. It was great to have you. High time. Well done.